Thanks, Scott. Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary, and grateful and honored to be able to open the Word of God today. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4, and I encourage you to actually have a Bible open for this one because we're going to be going through a good amount of text and summarizing some of it, and it'll be helpful to just see what's going on. And for the first little while, the verses will not be up on the screen. So there's uh, Bibles in the seats in front of you, um, and that can be helpful as we go through it. Now, the book of Daniel is a book that is full of visions and dreams, and we're approaching now the second dream that's recorded for us of Nebuchadnezzar in this story. And just to catch you up to speed, Nebuchadnezzar is an arrogant and successful ruler. He rules over pretty much the known world in Babylon. And in the last chapter, he had a, a golden image constructed, and he commanded everyone to bow down and worship this image. And three people were not willing to do it, and so he threw them, these three, into a fire furnace. They escaped, and he comes to some recognition about who the God is of Israel. Yet we see that throughout the story, Nebuchadnezzar's humility often lives, looks short-lived, incomplete. And so we'll be looking at his story today as he has another dream. In Boulder, there's a statue off 29th Street, uh, right, right off 29th Street Mall on 30th Street called the Self-Made Man. And maybe some of you have seen this before, but it's a statue of a man who's chiseling himself out of rock. And so the, the top half of his body is emerging. He's continuing to pound out and chisel out the rest of his body. And the idea is somewhat of our cultural vision of you can succeed in life through working hard, through performing. The, who you create yourself to be, who you make yourself to be, uh, what, what you destine your life for, you can be. You're the self-made man or the self-made woman, the self-made person who creates themselves from the abyss, who creates themselves from nothing and makes a name and a reputation and an image for themselves. And so our cultural narrative often goes something like this. You know, you find what your passion is. You find what you care most about. And you give your whole self to that. And when you succeed, when you go down that path, you don't let anyone tell you what you can or can't do, but you just keep your eye forward. You decide who you will be and what you will do. You can be the self-made person. There's one author, Alan Noble, in his book called You Are Not Your Own. And he says this, he says, the basic story we tell ourselves in the modern world is of self-discovery. Our films, novels, and TV shows repeatedly follow the story of a protagonist who longs to know who they truly are, to uncover their authentic self, to throw off the expectations of fathers, teachers, and the rest of society in order to follow their own path. And later on, he says, we might even say, that self-discovery is our contemporary hero's journey. Meaning, what is it that a hero does? What, what does a successful hero do? They discover. And so we have these ideas of self-discovery and self-creation in our culture that come together in this idea that you are to define and determine who you are and what your destiny is. You decide who you will be and what you will do and the meaning and the purpose of your life and no one else has that right to define it for you. It's the idea of the self-made person. And our passage today is going to speak to this idea through the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And so we're going to start in verse 4. We're in Daniel 4. 
We'll start in verse four. And here's how it begins. And it's from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar telling the story. He says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Things are going well for Nebuchadnezzar here. Something's going to happen. Verse 5, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And if you're tracking with the story of Daniel, maybe you recognize this before, because Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream before, and he calls people in, and now he's calling people in to interpret the dream again. So he calls in the astrologers. He calls in the enchanters. He call in, calls in the Chaldeans and the magicians to make known the interpretation. But even though he calls all the wisdom of the kingdom in, they can't tell him what his dream means. But he remembers. There's this man, Daniel, who has divine wisdom. And so he calls in Daniel to make known the meaning of the dream, who's also known as Belteshazzar. So Daniel comes in in verse nine, in verse 10, he tells him, in verse 10, he tells him the meaning or the dream. So this is Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. This is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. It's a pretty good dream right now. It's this great tree that reaches the heavens. All these creatures are living into it. The birds are in it. The beasts are under it. But then something happens. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed loud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the, the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowly, sets over it the lowliest of men. So this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and he asks Daniel to interpret this dream. And Daniel, hearing this dream, becomes alarmed, unsettled, because he knows this is not good news for Nebuchadnezzar, what he's about to tell him of what this dream really means. And so Daniel tells him essentially this, Nebuchadnezzar, this dream you had of this great tree, it's you. You're the tree that's going to be chopped down. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. 
And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Because you're, you're going to be humbled, Nebuchadnezzar. But, but here's my wisdom to you. Verse 27, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that, that there may perhaps, perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. If you remember last week, we had our Micah 6-8 weekend where we talked about how God's called us to do justice, to love mercy or kindness and to walk humbly with our God. And you can hear similarities in what he's telling Nebuchadnezzar. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, this proud and arrogant, self-conceited ruler. He's saying, what should you do? Break off your sins and be a righteous ruler. Show mercy and kindness and love and faithfulness to the oppressed. Don't use your power and your authority to rule over them harshly, but show kindness and mercy to those who are under you. And this is the command to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, perhaps there would be a lengthening of your days. He's called to repent. But what happens? He's called to repent. How does he respond? Verse 28 all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. It's not good. It's going to happen. Verse 29, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, Nebuchadnezzar here is overlooking his kingdom. And he's, according to human standards, he's the most powerful man upon the earth. He, he's conquered the known world. He's on the roof of his palace. He, he's perhaps in this moment overlooking the hanging gardens, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, which is under his dominion and authority. And he looks at all he has. He looks at his whole kingdom and he says, isn't this Babylon which I have built? I built it by my mighty power. It's the, it's the residence for the glory of my majesty. It's his power, his glory. See, Nebuchadnezzar here is the self-made man. He's the one who's conquered and achieved and who boasts in what he has done and what he has created. And rather than seeing all the kingdom that he's been given as a gift from God, which he is supposed to steward and rule over, he says, it's me. It's my power, my glory, my name, my image, and my reputation. He's a self-made man boasting in what he's accomplished. Now, it's easy to look at Nebuchadnezzar and to see his pride. But the truth is that we can all live with this sort of pride where we really think that we, we don't need God. And maybe sometimes we think we, we need God in one or two moments of our life. If he's going to change the course of our life in some big way, we need him. But often we live, I live, we live as though we don't need God. We've all lived in this way before where we really are self-dependent and self-reliant. And we look at things that we've accomplished in our life and we say, am I not great? Wasn't I the one who accomplished this? I think of first students, maybe, maybe it's in athletics. You have a student who's a great athlete and they could think, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a great athlete because I worked hard and, and I accomplished and, and I've gotten to this point. But we so often forget the things that God has given us, 
Like, like, think about this. Who is it who gives us our bodies? Who gives us health and strength? Who's the one who even chose that we would be born and exist in a world, in a culture, in a time, in a place where the sport that we're excellent at even exists? All this was given and so much beyond our control. Who's the one who gives us the strength and energy and the breath in our lungs? Or we can think about being successful in a career and you can say, well, well, I worked hard. I sacrificed so much. I gave up all of this to succeed in my career. And I've, I've made it because I am the self-made person. I'm the self-made man. I'm the self-made woman. I've given all this up. I've, I've done the sleepless nights. I've worked hard. I, I, was, I was at the library when everyone was in their beds. And yet again, the question, who's, it, who's given us our reasoning? Who gave us our minds? Who gives us the breath in our lungs? Who put the people in our life who would help us learn and grow and mature? It's often not until we lose something in our life that we realize just how dependent we are. It's often not until sickness comes to me that I realize I'm so dependent. And the strengths that I think I have, the plans that I think I have, all of a sudden become shortened. And I realize that I'm finite. I can't do all the things I want to do. Maybe for you, it's, it's having a child who wakes you up at four in the morning, and all of a sudden, these plans and these things that you were planning to do, it's just in a moment, your life has changed. And you realize how much you need strength from the Lord. Maybe it's as someone in your life is, is struggling with illness or sickness and all of a sudden you're called to care for them and you realize in those moments that you're dependent, that we're dependent. In tragic loss, we realize that we're fragile. But we often are tempted to boast in our accomplishments. Though we've been given these gifts to, to rule over to exercise this authority, we often boast as though we had done it. And I think this is one of the reasons why we so often in our culture idolize successful people. Because we say that they must have had the secret sauce. They must have done something. If anyone deserves the boast, surely it's this person because they're the CEO of this company and look what they have accomplished. So we listen to the books, we, we listen to the podcasts, we try and adopt their morning routine. There's this idea that if we just work hard enough, if you just do enough, if you just give yourself to it, you can do anything you want to be. You can be anyone you want to be. You can be the self-made man or the self-made woman. But the reality that we often discover is that we are utterly dependent upon God. That on our own strength, we can actually do nothing that we can only do what God has given us, that we can only succeed in the things that God gives us strength for, that he's given each one of us a sense of authority and dominion and responsibility, but all of it is a gift by God and for God that we're not self-made. And so we see the result of Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance here in verse 31. It says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. I mean, think about that. It's like, he's just boasting. He said, I built it all. Aren't I awesome? And the words are still in his mouth. And this is the voice that comes to him. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men 
and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar goes from the great height of ruling over the most powerful nation upon the earth to becoming like an animal. The way he's described is he's eating grass like an ox. Not so much the idea that he metamorphosizes into like a cow, but his mind, he had everything and now he doesn't even have his mind and he's become like the animals. He's eating grass like an ox. His hair grows long like an eagle's feathers and his nails grow long like that of a bird. And think about what's happening in this. Before in the vision, who was he? He was this tree that had reached the heavens and the birds would nest in it and the beasts would dwell under it. But now, having been humbled and brought down, he has become like the animals that he was ruling over. And in seeking to be God, seeing himself as the one with all power and all authority and all dominion and all glory, he becomes like the animals. It's a digression in the created order that he was made to rule over the creatures, but now he's become like them. Genesis 1, 27 to 28 is such a helpful cross-reference for this passage. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is the creation of humanity by God. They were made in the image of God. And this is what we're supposed to do in verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, God creates us in his image and he puts us upon the earth with this plan that we would rule over creation, that we would rule over the creatures. And yet here is Nebuchadnezzar who confusing himself for God, denying his need for God, actually is no longer ruling as the image of God upon the earth, but in judgment, he is brought low to the level of the animals. And this is actually a theme that runs throughout scripture, that when we seek to be God, rather than realizing that we are creatures with worth as his image bearers, when we seek to ascend the throne and become God ourselves, we become less like God. Think about it in the Garden of Eden. Satan's temptation is, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God. You don't need to live under him. You can determine what is right and wrong for yourself. You can be like God. And what happens? They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but rather than becoming more like God, they become less like God because they're now corrupted by sin. They become less like God made them to be as human. It's been said to err as human, but that's actually not true. True humanity, as it was originally designed, is not to err, it's not to be faulty, it's not to fail, it's actually to be in God's image, which is why we need Christ who can restore us to that that we become less than human, less than God made us to be when we fall into sin. We see the same thing at Babel. What do they say? We're gonna make a tower to the heaven. See the parallel between 
tower to heaven, the tree to heaven. We're going to make a tower to heaven. We're going to make a name and a reputation for ourselves. But what happens, their language is confused and they are dispersed. When we seek to be like God, we become less like God. And so we, we live in a world where we've been promised that we can be God. We've been promised that we can be like God. We, we can determine our destiny. We can determine who we are and what we do. We can determine the whole course and trajectory of our lives. Where we're promised this, that your life is about what you make it about. That your meaning is what you make it in life. Your purpose and your destiny you can be whoever you want to be and you can do whatever you want to do. You can be your own God in determining right and wrong. But at the same time, though that's been given to us as a promise, we also find ourselves lost in a world that feels so often devoid of meaning, devoid of truth, and devoid of goodness when we go down that path. And we live in a world of anxiety, a world of despair, a world of disconnection, loss of sense of purpose and connection and meaning. And despite all the wealth that we have in our world, I mean, we're one of the most wealthy nations that's ever lived historically, like up to this point, and globally around the world. Despite all the wealth that we have as a nation, despite all the technology, despite all the freedoms and all the ways that we can express ourselves, despite all the opportunities we have to move and live and do different jobs and get different training and access to information, we still live with this nagging sense that something is not right in our world. And why is that? Because salvation through self-creation is a failed project. It will never work. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. We were not made to create ourselves. We were not made to discover through ourselves alone our identity and meaning and purpose. But all of those things, the identity we have, the reason that we live, the things that we do are actually all divine gifts that come from above. They're all gifts from God. And so we know as Christians that we don't chisel out our own identity and meaning in life, but we're actually gifted a name, an identity, a purpose by a loving God who created us. The New City Catechism is a question and answer about the Christian faith. And the first question in the New City Catechism is this. It's what is our only hope in life and death? What's our only hope in life and death? And the answer, through the kids' version, because the kids' version is really helpful. It's what we're going through with our own kid. And it has catchy songs if you ever need it. Um, they will get stuck in your head, but they help you remember the truth. But what is our only hope in life and death? It's this that we are not our own, but belong to God. That actually our life and meaning and purpose is not found through self-creation, but belonging to a loving God. And we see this in the story of Nebuchadnezzar that, that it can only be through right relationship to God that we are restored and given reason and understanding. In verse 34, we, we see Nebuchadnezzar as he goes through his humiliation to his restoration. In verse 34, it says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. He's been crawling on the ground, perhaps, like a cow eating grass. 
And finally, his reason, as he looks to heaven, is restored. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still great, more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. See, for Nebuchadnezzar, his reason returned as he looked to God. Going through this time of pride and self-conceit, his reason returns after this period of judgment where he looks to God and he realizes rightly who God is and who he is in light of God. That God is the one who is eternal. That God is the one who is truly king who rules from generation to generation. As we'll see in the book of Daniel, there's kings that come and go just in one small book. And yet God is faithful in building his kingdom throughout it. That God is the God who is powerful and just and right in all of his ways and who is able to humble even the most proud. And Nebuchadnezzar is restored as he looks to heaven and realizes God rightly. And so the question is, what do we take from all of this? We were made in the image of God. Each one of us has worth, meaning, dignity in our lives, not because of what we produce, not because of what we achieve in school, in a career, in our society, but simply because we are made in the image of God. And we were made to take the gifts and the blessings that God has given us whether that be athletic abilities, whether that be intelligence, whether that be relationships, responsibilities, business, all these good things, we're meant to take those and exercise authority under God. But here's the issue is that when we reject life under God, we become less than who we were made to be. When, when we seek to be God, we actually become less like God and we become less than God created us to be as his people. And the problem is that we've all done that. We've all sinned against God. We, we've all gone our own way. We, we've all sought to determine what is right and good. We've all boasted in some way in ourselves as though we did not need God. The pride that we see here in Nebuchadnezzar is something that we have all done. Lived as though we did not need God, as though we are autonomous and independent without a need for him. And in seeking to be God, we've determined what is right and wrong for ourselves. That's, that's what it is to sin. And yet, the good news is that the end of the story is not only that God created us and that we've gone away, but there is a God who restores his people by his grace. And, and one of the clearest passages on this is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where it talks about how it's the grace of God to save his people. It says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
So how are we saved? It's by God's grace through faith that we have turned against him. We have gone against him, but how does he bring us back by his grace when we were far from him? When we had become darkened in our understanding and far from God, he came to us. And it's by grace through faith that we are saved, not by our works. It's by his grace and kindness. And I love verse 10 and how, how it ties us together. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Who are we in Christ? We're his workmanship, not chiseled out by human hands, but created by the hands of a loving God. That God has created us new in Christ. He created us first, humanity in his image. And though we've sinned and gone against him, now he recreates us in Christ, so that those who were lost to God can now be brought to God, so that we might be his workmanship, his creative expression, his creation, his image bearers upon the earth to do the good works which he prepared from before we even existed. So I think what is the message that we pass on to our children? As we think about baby dedication or child dedication this morning, what's the message that we want to pass on from generation to generation? whether this is for you as those being one of your kids or just as someone in the church who's instructing the next generation or making disciples, what message do we pass on about how to live the Christian life? It's not this. It's not that you can do or be anything you want. And though that message might sound liberating, I think that's actually an enslaving message that will lead people through anxiety and fear and concern to always wonder, have I done enough? Have I achieved enough? Have I accomplished enough? Am I worthy? Am I loved? Am I valued? Do I belong? It will lead us to be isolated. And yet the message we give is not that you can do or be whatever you want, but it's this. In Christ, you are, you are exactly who God made you to be. You already have the worth and the value because God loves and made you. In Christ, you are exactly who God made you to be. And you get to do this now. As those who are in Christ, you get to do the things. You get to walk in the things. You get to live the life that he has planned from all eternity for you. See, as the Christian, we're given a name and an identity, a value and an acceptance that does not come by what we perform and achieve, but by a God who loves us, which means that your grades do not determine value. Your success in a career does not determine your value. How you achieve and how you honor the economy does not determine your value. How we get value is by the God who made us, not by what we produce, not by the things we bring. But then we get the beautiful message that God has also prepared good works for us. He's given us gifts and talents and abilities that he recreates us and gives us a purpose and a meaning in our lives that's all through the gospel. So this is the hope that we have as Christians, that there's a God who loves us and cares for us. And even though we've gone against him, he restores us and brings us to himself so that we can have confidence today knowing that we belong to God, that our lives have purpose and meaning and that he has good works for us to walk in. And we can trust him for the strength that we need on a day-by-day -day basis to do that, because all gifts come from him.
And that's the message we want to pass on from generation to generation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love and care for us so deeply. Pray for just brothers and sisters in this room who may be struggling with frustration or challenges in life right now um, around perhaps career, perhaps around family situations or just a sense of mental health or struggle in their relationship with you, struggle in relationship with others. Lord, we just are reminded this morning that you are the one who rules from generation to generation and that our lives are given meaning and purpose in you. So I pray that we would look to you, God. Pray that we would rest in you. Pray that we would be a people who don't define ourselves by status or income, by the reputation of others or our image. But we know ourselves as those who are dearly beloved in Christ and that we live from that, Lord. Give us strength, give us wisdom, give us grace, we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.